Hi, and welcome back to OA on Air via social distancing. This is Suzanne Morse. This week, I fill in for the vacationing Kyan Isaacson for 321 Go with Cosmo Macero. And then later, I interview Peter Palangin, the CEO of Intercontinental Real Estate, about the newly launched A Day for Democracy initiative. And finally, Tom O'Neill reflects on the life and legacy of the late John Hume, an architect of peace in Northern Ireland. First up, 321 Go. Hello, and welcome back to another edition of 321 Go, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm joined this week by my colleague, Suzanne Morse of Seven Letter. Suzanne, great to have you. Great to be here, Cosmo. All right, filling in for the vacationing, Kyan Isaacson. Hey, um, Suzanne, let's talk about a complicated hoax uh, involving COVID-19, involving an, a Twitter identity, uh, completely manufactured, as it turns out, by an Arizona State University professor. Break it down for us. Yeah, so it is complicated, but the gist of it is that an academic named Beth Ann McLaughlin, who I actually don't think was at Arizona State, um, I, in my reading of the uh, situation, she tried yeah, to get. Yes, the, I'm sorry. You're right. The the, the, fa- the false personality or the false right. figure was allegedly at Arizona State. Correct. The Sun Devils. So this person, Beth Ann McLaughlin, created this um, sciencing by Twitter handle. Um, the persona that she created for this handle or for this account, was a professor at Arizona State who was a person of color. She claimed to be a member of the Hopi tribe and um, was bisexual. Um, As you mentioned, it's a long-running hoax because she created this account in 2016. Um, And this spring, the Sciencing By account started to claim that, that the person running it had COVID. Um, and she blamed Arizona State for it. She said that Arizona State forced her to uh, teach a 200-person lecture. She said that Arizona State had cut her pay. And then last week, allegedly, sciencing by succumbed to COVID. Well, as it turned out, you know, people started communicating with Arizona State saying, hey, why aren't you acknowledging this professor's death? And Arizona State basically was like, this is not true. We don't have a faculty member who died of COVID. And so it was uh, later revealed to be this woman, Beth Ann McLaughlin, who had basically created this whole fake persona using this uh, Twitter account. You know, whenever a case like this emerges, um, the first question is, what were they thinking? Why would they do that? What's the motivation? And and, and there are some, um, you know, cases of sort of false identity fraud in which there were very specific motives. I want to talk about one of my favorites in a few moments, but in this case, you know, we don't really learn what the motive is. And ultimately, this Beth Ann McLaughlin just does the old, my actions have been unconscionable and this was wrong. I just want someone once to say, you know what? I was bored, okay. I, I I needed something to do, and I was I, I, and I and I and I and I wanted to perpetrate a hoax. I, I don't know. Just what's the purpose of of concocting all this? Unless I guess it's some kind of a sign of uh, I don't know emotional instability or whatever. What do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, 
you know, in reading the stories, I read a story in the New York Times in which she actually admitted to being the person behind the account and also in BuzzFeed News. Um, it's clear there was a lot of interesting intersections here between academic politics, politics and social justice issues. This person, Beth Ann McLaughlin, was the head of an organization called Me Too STEM that was taking on issues of sexual harassment within the science community. And particularly if you look on BuzzFeed, there's a lot of different articles about how um, her relationship to other people within this Me Too STEM movement were pretty combative. So um, my suspicion is that she has a very combative personality and that may contribute to why she created this account. Um, it, is, it is interesting though, because I just find it fascinating. I find all of those kinds of hoax uh, stories fascinating. I think this is an old fashioned case of catfishing, which was much more prevalent 10 or 15 years ago when message boards were more dominant um, on, on the, in the digital space than social media was. Yeah. Um, there were some pretty high profile cases uh, around 10 or 15 years ago, but it is interesting to see that she was able to pull this off for four years and only it, really got caught because she escalated it. It, it. it is pretty remarkable. Um, I guess a cousin of this is, is the fabrication or fabulism that sometimes has infiltrated journalism. Yeah. Jason yeah, Blair is a famous similar. case. And Jason Blair from New York Times, he, he created more like sources of convenience. I'm still fascinated by the whole Stephen Glass case in the New Republic. Uh, complex, intertwined manufacturing of of, of characters to for, to per perpetrate his fraud. And, and it, again, that's a cousin of this. It's not exactly the same thing, but but it it feels like it's similar. Um, just real quick, there's always a, there's always books or 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 things from your youth, your adolescence, or even in this case, even earlier that that you remember that. That got you interested in reading, and in my case, reading and journalism. One, one is a book called <laughs> "Strange but True Baseball Stories" by Furman Bisher, and it was like one of those things where I get into that book and I was like, "Wow, I, I really enjoy reading anecdotes and stories," and wow, I'm really interested in journalism, even though I never really became a sports writer. But my point being, there's a there's one anecdote in there. It's about Ty Cobb. It's called "A Young Man in a Hurry," and it's a great story because when he was a minor league ball player in Alabama, he was he was absolutely a phenom, but no one knew who he was. No one could. So he was he started sending under someone else's name letters and letters to this guy, Grantland Rice, fam very oh, yeah. famous turn of the century, early 20th century sports writer, saying, you got to see this guy, Ty Cobb. You get, and, and there were letters from some, you know, some uh, baseball scout in Alabama, of course. It was all manufactured. It was all made up. It was all phony. He was just him. No one knew about it for his whole career. No kidding. Until I, until I believe at a baseball writer's dinner at his retirement, he said, hey, hey, Grant, you know all those letters that you used to get? Those were from me. And I'm like, wow. It's you know, And I was like an 11-year-old kid reading that story. Same idea, though. you know. And, and there was a motive. There was a purpose. right? I'm, I got to make myself famous. Chances are... Ty Cobb was going to get famous anyways, but there's a real motive behind a a, a, a phony identity. And in this case, with sciencing bias, it's it's sort of unclear. Yeah, I agree. I had not heard that story. And it's what from what I know of Ty Cobb, it sounds like uh, Ty Cobb was something Ty Cobb would have done. Yes, a, a, a notoriously awful person, <laughs> uh, but a great hitter. 
But I do think your point about the one thing I wanted to say too is, and it sort of relates to the Ty Cobb story. I mean, the point that you make about Jason Blair and Stephen Glass, which are kind of very notorious uh, cases within the journalism field of, of fake news, literally fake news, it Ty Cobb put a lot of effort into it for a purpose. What's so fascinating to me about this case or the Stephen Glass case or the Jason Blair cases, you they actually put a lot of work into creating these personas. So it's why, exhausting. Yeah, exactly. And why not put it's, the work it's, it's into not enough being one person? Yeah, I know. It's just I, I think that it's so interesting that you could create you could put so much intellectual capital and and, uh, and thought into creating these fake persona when you could actually use that time to build up your own your own visibility on social media. So anyway, it's a very interesting case. And I follow a lot of academics on social media and a lot of them were really kind of both shocked and, and truly appalled by this story. So it's been interesting to see the fallout. It really has. All right. Great topic, Suzanne. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Cosmo. All right, and finally, Suzanne, Lin-Manuel Miranda, the genius behind Hamilton, apparently is hated by Generation Z, according to Rolling Stone. Please explain this. Yeah, so Rolling Stone has this article about how Generation Z has taken to TikTok, which is their favorite medium, to basically do a lot of making fun of Lin-Manuel Miranda. But really and truly... Does that mean, does that mean there is a Chinese plot to take down Lin-Manuel Miranda? <laughs> I'm behind on my on my latest TikTok drama. Uh, yeah, I am too. I've actually studiously avoided uh, yeah. downloading TikTok. The Sorry, real your point. The real story is actually to me about how this is about conflict between Generation Z and Millennials. And what's I the difference? Think, Wait, is, is that is that like a, a like a razor thin difference, or is that li- like a hard stop? You know. Oh, you have come to the right person when it when it's about Thank generational conflict. <laughs> so I would say Generation Z is basically the the young people who were born either around 2000 or shortly thereafter. And so you know those people are now 18, 19, 20, and they are starting to make their pop culture ascendancy heard. So you know for you and me who are both members of generation x and a much smaller demographic cohort we had to sort of live in the shadow of baby boomers in terms of pop culture and then the millennials kind of came up and usurped us pretty quickly we had about five or six years when we were the considered like the cool thing and then suddenly millennials were like all of it it's it's Um, true and and i'm i'm i i slipped in under the under the wire i'm you know two years in a generation x but i i completely identify with generation x a hundred percent like i really get i really react negatively when someone gives you the okay boomer because i'm like i'm no baby boomer i'm a generation expert right well the thing is though when you think about it millennials have been the pop culture kings and queens for 20 years. I mean, it really, 
Yeah. And so I think part of this and part of, I mean, the, the article is really interesting because it talks about the sort of ideological differences between Generation Z and Millennials. But really, this is about the conflict you're going to see now that Millennials are sort of moving beyond the point where they are what dominates pop culture. And it's going to be interesting to see over the next year or so, because basically what's going to happen is there's going to be this fight between the two generations, which you and I as, you know, Generation X can just kind of sit there and laugh at. But then eventually Generation Z is going to win because that's the way it always happens with age cohorts. Agreed. Well, um, I guess that is generational warfare right there. Conflict, generational conflict. Conflict, not warfare, conflict. But it's all, it's, it's inevitable. It's like the, you know, the tide coming in and out. Basically, this is what happens whenever a new age co cohort starts to reach its sort of majority and it starts to reach more of an earning power and just has more influence, influence on culture. It's just what happens. And then, you know, the, those of us who kind of start aging out get to like smirk knowingly as, you know, seniors and elders. Yeah. And, and there has been a fair amount of commentary on how Generation X has probably been well prepared for this, uh, you know, t terrible experience with COVID-19 about having to just kind of shut it down and eh, I'll stay in the house. OK. And, 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 and just kind of amuse yourself and look at the wall, which is not really true because there's so many ways to engage with the outside world. But um, I think there's some truth to that. I, I think there's some, at least some stoic nature to Generation X. I'm not saying that uh, we have suffered uh, like the greatest generation in any way, but um, I think we're less selfish for sure than our predecessors in, in, uh, in, the, in the baby boomer generation. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think, I mean, I, the whole idea around Generation X was sort of this notion that it's the X was supposed to stand for sort of nothingness, right? And so yeah. then Generation X became a different kind of identity. But the reality is we we labored under such low expectations for most of our lives that when we did start hitting the normal things of like permanent jobs and buying houses and having kids, it was like, oh, maybe they're not as apathetic and cynical as we thought they were. Yeah. Now, look, uh, one other point I want to make not, not to keep this going too long, but, you know, I, and you're right. The millennial generation, it, 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 it spans such a, a long period of time. And I think you kind of have to break it. And I'm not cracking on later millennials, but yeah. you have to break it down. And, and I have always felt that early millennials, because sometimes I think we, we, we uh, um, don't give that generation enough credit because early millennials that's a generation brought up in not only after 9-11 and in war, but as literally, you know, young men and women marching off to war. Right. It's, it is a it is a it is a war torn and sort of uh, uh, generation of, of veterans, as well as just the experience post 9-11 and the difficulties. Well, then here we are again. Now, think of all the youth who are coming of age or, or wanting to come of age. In the COVID nineteen generation, right? I mean, this experience—you're talking about one terrible day that led to years of war. When well, yeah. I'm talking about months and months of uncertainty and 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 you know disarray because of COVID nineteen, and maybe no, I, more. 
I think that's a really important point. It's on a very serious note. Both millennials who did, you know, my younger brother is a sort of an older millennial. You know, he was, I guess, uh, 17 when September 11th happened. Um, he just graduated college with college when the Great Recession happened. And obviously, you know, he has now two young kids as this pandemic is happening. And so, yeah. you know, absolutely, they've experienced a lot. And, and obviously, this Generation Z has experienced a lot um, coming up at this point, you know, massive school shootings, as well as the pandemic, etc. So, you know, I do think that there is a, a lot to... Um, to recognize about that, that they have experienced a lot of really difficult things, but it is kind of funny. It is kind of something, I'm not sure, to sort of see this article come up where, you know, millennials and Generation Z are fighting over, you know, who, <laughs> over Lin-Manuel Miranda, basically. So exactly. I would I would recommend reading it. There is actually, and I will say about the article, there is actually a lot in there about these kind of ideological differences about working within the system versus wanting to sort of dismantle the system. And there's some value in, in, in learning about that too. Um, but again, you know, we have reached the, the point Cosmo, we as, as sort of elders that, you know, we can say, you know what, eventually your time is going to pass too. Indeed. All right, Suzanne, great to have you as always on three, two, one, go. Thanks a lot. Thanks Cosmo. Suzanne Morse, and I am here with Peter Palangin, who is the CEO of Intercontinental Real Estate and a driving force behind the A Day for Democracy initiative that was launched this week. A Day for Democracy, which you can learn more about at www.adayfordemocracy.com, is a nonpartisan initiative founded by CEOs to encourage leaders across the U.S. to pledge to increase voter registration and participation of their employees. An impressive number of CEOs from here in Boston and across the country have signed on, and Peter's here today to talk to us about the effort. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. This is my first podcast. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you on on your inaugural podcast. Um, so tell us a little bit about how the idea for A Day for Democracy came about. I know you've been troubled by the lack of luster voter participation in the U.S. for a while, but was there one spark for this particular idea? Um, well, kind of, sure. You know, you put your finger on something, and I don't want to kind of underwhelm you with the lack of research and science here, but it just from childhood, I never, I was always puzzled by how only half our country votes. And, you know, in the last six months, probably like yourselves or your, your listeners, um, been watching a lot of news. And, uh, you know, there's a lot going on around the country, certainly with the pandemic, with civil unrest. And, you know, one night at midnight, uh, um, you know, my maybe over newsed out, my wife stood up in the bed and kind of screamed, what are we going to do about this? Um, that's a true story. And, and, you know, I said to her that evening, you know, I've had this idea that I, you know, maybe companies could give a day off to employees. And, you know, so she kind of gave me a good uh, kick in the butt and said, well, let's do that. Let's go after it. And, and that's where it came from. And we kind of strategized around some kind of closer circles of friends whom we thought we could validate the idea and test it with. And that's what we did. You know, we called over the next kind of three days, 
five or six people who ended up pledging that we said, okay, they're thought leaders. And if they were to endorse and sign up, then we can build off that. And, and it would prove we have something here. So really that's where it came from. Yeah, I should say, I actually did um, my master's degree on the civic engagement of young people. And so I'm pretty well versed in the the data that you were talking about, and your instincts are correct, um, that the, the voter participation rate amongst um, Americans is pretty low when you consider that we have the longest continuing democracy in the world. So um, yeah. it's an interesting story to hear. The other thing I'd add to it is um, I've been involved with this terrific organization called the Mikva Challenge. Mm-hmm. And it was named for uh, Congressman Abner Mikva in Illinois. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, who's a little bit of, I, I liken him to how, uh, you know, Joe Moakley was for us in our hearts. Um, yep. Just a, you know, real good person. And um, so Mikva, um, the program goes in to the Chicago public school system. And so it needs endorsement from a mayor and a school superintendent. And it teaches civic engagement to high schoolers. You need coordination for the high school curriculum. And so it was, I want to say, founded approximately 15 years ago. And it's taken off around the country now. They're doing many, um, you know, we've started in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. So if a 10th grader thinks that they need a speed bump on on their street, how do they go about that? You know, right. How do you engage with aldermen, with selectmen? Um, these kids are taught uh, in, they go on trips to the Iowa caucuses, to the New Hampshire polls. You know, one year I went to Washington with 15 high schoolers and they met Senator Obama. He sat on the back of his desk and just talked to the kids for an hour. It's a wonderful program. Wow. And it's, I've always thought that, you know, Boston could really use that. In Boston, we love our politics. And by the way, that program is entirely also um, nonpartisan. And, and, um, but it, it, it teaches it. And we teach so much in high school. You can even learn how to um, deal with car engines or homemaking or home economics. How is it that we don't teach civic engagement? And in Boston, we're, Mikva is working with Generation Citizen. So between that and, and Eliza, my wife comes from certainly a kind of a socially minded and a political background. It's she's never been shy about opinions, and so that you know this is just it's become important. How do we get engagement? And it just seems like things are fertile right now. Corporations are open to this, and it's been like a lot of people. We walk every day in shelter, and I you know we do these calls, and then we decompress and debrief on the calls, and. And we're just blown away by how easy it is for CEOs or university presidents to get to a yes and to join this campaign. Yeah, I mean, you're preaching to the choir when it comes to um, civic education and the importance of it. And, you know, it leads to my next question, which is, I feel like that this initiative, um, and particularly with partnering with TurboVote, is a way to educate voters themselves. But I think it also helps to educate other Americans about some of the practical barriers to voting that um, they themselves may not be experiencing, but their neighbor may be. Um, So do you see this um, initiative as an educational initiative as well as a civic engagement one? And why do you think there's so much interest in this kind of um, initiative? Huh. Well, you know, on the one hand, I, I think I don't want to sound preachy, but if you look at o- over decades, kind of voter turnout, 
um, engaging and activating kind of 18 to 30 year olds has been a challenge. And, and some candidates have done that effectively. But the gold, you know, the brass ring is certainly elderly voting and then millennial voting. And so for people in the workforce, you know, I'd, normally I'd say everyone has a job. But obviously, these are unusual times. But, um, you know, one point of kind of distribution for it's a terrible way to say it is through corporations and companies, because, you know, my company, we have 112 employees. IBM might have, you know, half a million employees, but it's an opportunity for a CEO to speak directly to people. And it's it's never to preach left, right, center. It's just to say we think voting is important and and having representations important and you know trying to engage a 25 year old today in that is is really important because decisions are being made locally or nationally that will affect them so how do you kind of just alert them to that and educate them that we try to do that as parents too you know and i I was always taught kind of romantically at age 18 voting is important you know and and i've in like reading a sunday newspaper with a cup of coffee going to town hall on the first Tuesday in November has always been an important thing. And, and I, you know, I hope, I hope that becomes um, kind of uh, more uh, urgent in the, as a result in some small way of this campaign. I like the idea of romanticizing voting. Cause I think that is something that's been missing for a while. So it's a nice idea. But embedded in your question too, is, you know, this time period, it's more important than ever. Yeah. Uh, I was talking with a a retired governor and uh, he loved the idea. And he said, look, we're doing some work around this in a different way. We're educating to on November 3rd. We we hope people will go with soccer chairs and water bottles. You know, you don't have to look further than Kentucky and Georgia to see kind of how things can go wrong with the length of lines. And imagine if you're a single parent or you don't have daycare and you have to get home and you're in a in a voting line that's three, four hours long. Um, so it's kind of more pressing than ever, given the pandemic this year. Absolutely. So, I mean, this the, the initiative has garnered support from a lot of highly visible individuals and companies, and people should visit the website because they, they can see the, the kinds of um, CEOs and companies who have signed on. Um, why do you think that is, and what are you hearing from other CEOs about why they wanted to participate? <sighs> I haven't had a sense kind of in a granular way of, you know, what the culture at Harvard, Putnam, B of A, et cetera, is other than the leaders just saying, we agree, you know, many of them had programs in place already. Um, You know, one of my early conversations with Ann Finucan at Bank of America was she said, we've worked really hard at this. You know, we've determined, resolved to give four hours off that day. And we hope that's enough. But I, I, I love what you're doing because the online piece could have a different reach. And then you have other um, essential worker type cultures, say the hospitals, um, some of the um, hospital presidents in Boston, and most of them have signed up. But they said, well, geez, we can't give doctors and nurses, uh, you know, an essential work in a care environment the day off um, or even maybe time off. But we love the online piece. And so I, I'm not really answering your question in terms of the why. I, I can imagine if you go industry by industry, why people might care about engagement more than ever this year. But then I also think that there's wind at the back in terms of some of the civil unrest, which is not related to this directly, but it is in so far as 
all these movements have one thing in common, which is, you know, using your voice and, and voting is the way to do it. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that there are multiple reasons that, you know, one company is not, you know, necessarily motivated by the next company's participation. Um, but I think what we are all hearing is a call for civic renewal. And that may be the kind of overarching theme that is motivating a lot of different people to become involved. I agree. Um, so you've had the successful launch. There was a great story in the Boston Globe. What's next for the A Day for a Democracy initiative? Yeah, so I'll give you a technical answer and then a kind of a prayer. The technical answer is, um, you know, we got up and running with our uh, website uh, and we'll have some print advertisement starting in Boston. And uh, and then I expect we'll move on to some national media. Um, and, uh, you know, the, we're going to drive it through a LinkedIn campaign, um, which is the social media of choice, certainly in the corporate world, but it doesn't mean that people can't tweet and Instagram about it, et cetera. I'm getting coaching on that, by the way. Um, so that's kind of where it's going to go in terms of um, people seeing it. Um, and then in terms of the intention, it's to get to other states. You know, Massachusetts and California, given my wife's background, um, was kind of a natural launching point. Um, but you know, and, and arguably those states might be a little bit easier for civic engagement and, and a push towards online voting. But the real goal is also to get to Florida, Ohio, Michigan, where, by the way, we've signed up companies already and, you know, Arizona, Wisconsin, Nevada, and, and really the whole country. It's just with 100 days to go scaling this is going to be the interesting challenge. And we're up for it. Technology allows that. And, you know, you really need to just set kind of brush fires. If you can find a beast in Cleveland, a beast in Detroit, one in Philadelphia, Harrisburg, Pittsburgh, in uh, some of the key Florida states, someone who says, I think voting's important and I'm going to lean in here and I'm going to word of mouth this to death. Uh, that's really the next phase. And we thought we'd do that after Labor Day um, and really work on Massachusetts now. But it's it's already happening uh, in other parts of the country, and and so we're we're going after it kind of immediately. Um, and I suppose we should mention that your wife is Eliza Dushku, who is an actress and a producer, and obviously has um, a lot of connections in Hollywood, which has I think helped with the California piece of this. Yeah, and as much as you know, she's enjoying being um, certainly a private citizen. She's in school. She's starting a graduate program. You know, the last thing she wants is um, uh, kind of attention around that. But the exception here is she's willing to, you know, to contact friends and, and past business contacts for this because, you know, the 55 to 56 percent voting, which has been the data around the last few elections, is disappointing to all of us, whether you're in the entertainment industry or you're in high finance. Um, so she, she's leaning in that way, but she's also got her classes that she's, she's back to school in September. So is there anything we missed? Um, that's it. I guess, you know, if I, if I may, just for listeners, um, you know, word of mouth is everything. If, if, you know, walk down the hall and ask your head of HR or ask your president, ask your CEO, if you're a not-for-profit, ask your executive director. It's a pretty simple pledge. It's just allow time off for voting 
or encourage and facilitate an online approach. And then word of mouth this, that's how it's going to happen. And so I, I appreciate the opportunity with you this morning. And I'd love it if other people, uh, that's the only way we're going to get the voting numbers up. Yes, and we should remind everyone the website is www.adayfordemocracy.com. And thank you, Peter for Palangin, for joining us. Thank you so much. All the best. Hi, Sophia. How are you? I'm doing well, Tom. How are you? This is fine. This this is typically it's called two minutes with Tom, but it really turns out to be five to eight minutes with Cayenne or Sophia. So (laughs) welcome aboard. And um, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And I know what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about John Hume. Yeah. Who was was one of the the great leaders of all Ireland and uh, not only the most popular man in Ireland, but the man who brought peace to Ireland. Um, And I'm, I'm thrilled because he not only was a family friend, a great friend of my dad's and mine, but O'Neill and Associates represented his party, the Social Democratic Labor Party, for about 25 years here in this country. Um, not only Ireland, but Europe and the world have lost a great, great leader. Yes, so um, we lost him this week, and uh, he is the only person in history to have been awarded all three peacemaking prices, <laughs> the Gandhi Peace Prize, the MLK Award, and the Nobel Peace Prize. I know you already shared a little bit about your thoughts on Mr. Hume, but is there anything else you would like to say about well, him? Hey, I was I was in uh, I was in uh, with John at the Nobel Peace Prize reception for him uh, in Oslo, and I must tell you it was one of the most powering experiences of my life, and I know John's. Um, as I said, he was a great he was a great friend, and he will be deeply missed. Let me. Let me share with you something that Bono wrote about him because he says it perfectly about John Hume. Mm -hmm. He goes on to say, we were looking for a giant and found a man whose life made all of our lives bigger. We were looking for some superpowers and found clarity and thought, kindness and persistence. We were looking for revolution and found it in parish halls with tea and biscuits and late night meetings under fluorescence. We were looking for a negotiator who understood that no one wins unless everybody wins. And that peace is the only victory. We were looking for joy and heard it in the song of a man who loved his town so well and his missus even more. We were looking for a great leader and we found a great servant. We found John Hume. John Hume was the Martin Luther King of Ireland. He was recognized worldwide for bringing peace to a culture that differed, a race that differed, a religion that differed. He was a friend, but he was also, he was a man who had great leadership, great nobility, and his spirit will live long in me for a long time to come. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Sophia. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.